I, I know I shouldn't be surprised, but also somehow I'm still surprised. Like I have this vestigial assumption that maybe psychoanalysts might be more self-reflective rather than do enactments <laughs> constantly. But, but, but I guess here we are. Yeah. And I think what's even more challenging about some of this is that, you know, I think that many of the people who are, you know, participating in writing these kinds of papers, lending their names and reputations to, you know, anti-trans legislation through their quote unquote scientific papers do not understand themselves to be transphobic. They actually understand themselves to be on the side of protecting children. You know, there are, and and so that makes it even harder. It would be so much easier for one to just point to, you know, this person, you know, is out and out, um, you know, doing these bad things, but they don't understand themselves this way, right? This is, you know, it's sort of how do good people come to do bad things and still understand themselves to be good people. That's much more of a, that's a much more interesting question. Right? I'm thinking of something Donovan Schaefer has said, like affect helps us think about this, mm-hmm. right? How good people do bad things and still think of themselves as good. Psychoanalysis yeah. helps us think of that. I was th- I, I, on this note, I was actually struck by a, a delightful footnote in, 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 in the book. I think that, that references one of your papers, uh, Avi, uh, about a, a, a young child anal- analysis patient of yours who is sort of, dealing with uh, just metabolizing the atypical gender presentation of one of her peers. And I, I th- she says something on the lines of like, my brain hurts. And, and I, I was, I was so struck because it's what well, you, you then follow up with this. It is in the nature of immature psychic defenses to attribute to the other, the hurting of one's own brain, a strain that arises when confronted with difference. One cannot psychically bear analysts who become curious about their own brain hurt have a better chance at working well with genderqueer patients. And this idea of brain hurt, I felt like from the mouths of babes, it, there's so much truth in this and I get, there's so much aversion to, to, do, to dealing with things that hurt one's brain. But, but clearly when something hurts your brain, it's, it's, not, it's wonderful that a child is a child, but to imagine an adult like reaching for a battery of lawyers or uh, somehow like working in conjunction with think tanks that are it's just a whole other level of um absolutely absolutely and you know what like and at least when somebody reaches for an armamentarium of like legal uh mechanisms to suppress something at least that is visible part of what is much more not just problematic but kind of like insidious and dangerous in psychoanalysis is when one reaches for theory to yeah. amplify and buttress that brain hurt and turn it into kind of like a concept or or pull back anything that is new and emergent into something that becomes calcified through the return to, but this is not psychoanalysis or what we know from psychoanalysis is, and then referencing ideas about biology, about um, like psychic bisexuality, ideas that can, that can historic, that have historically been very constricted to serve very, um, uh, very kind of like goals that really amputate psychic life and amputate the possibilities of difference and um, and diversity. So, and and this is one of the things that psychoanalysis does so um, conservative psychoanalysis does so kind of like strongly. That's where it comes back to.
listening to Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm Patrick Blanchfield. And today I am delighted to introduce two guests, the authors of the recent and fantastic book, Gender Without Identity, Avi Sakatopoulou and Anne Pellegrini. Avi is a Cypriot and Greek psychoanalyst on faculty at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. She co-chaired the first conference in the U.S. on the work of Jean Laplanche, and she has been working with trans adults and with trans children and their families for over 20 years. Her book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk, Race, Traumatophilia, published in 2023 by NYU Press, traces the entwinements of sexuality with performance, queer aesthetics, and overwhelm, and explores the ethics of sadism. Avi's critical duets with Dominique Scarfone punctuate his essays in his forthcoming book, The Reality of the Message, Psychoanalysis in the Wake of Jean Laplanche. Anne Pellegrini is Professor of Performance Studies and Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University and a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. Their previous books include Performance Anxieties, Staging Psychoanalysis, Staging Race, and Love the Sin, Sexual Regulation, and the Limits of Religious Tolerance, which they co-authored with Janet R. Jacobson. Anne is also founding co-editor of the Sexual Cultures series at New York University Press. We loved your book. We're so excited to talk to you. Um, Avi, Anne, welcome. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be in conversation with the two of you. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to this. It's awesome to have you here. The book really is amazing. I'm just going to immediately and shamelessly tell everyone who's listening to this that they should go buy it. So I'll plug it repeatedly. It's really just a wonderful book. I, I found myself being to, to weave the clinical and the theoretical and to do it in a way that's so rigorously uh, sound and, 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 but also not uh, encumbered by a sort of a, a commitment to jargon or that doesn't, it, it just, it's, it's such a readable and powerful volume that I just really, it's, it, things like this come along, come along so rarely. It was a yeah. pleasure to read and it's a delight to talk to you both. Thank you. We labored, we really labored hard to make it as legible to non-expert readers as possible because we really, we're speaking to clinicians certainly mm-hmm. um, who may be struggling, may be anxious about how to sit with and, and respond to gender nonconformity in particular. But we um, also want it to reach a broader audience because we are in the midst of a panicked and often violent public conversation about gender nonconformity, about sexual nonconformity with real world consequences. So it mattered to us to be precise in our wording, but also lushly inviting in our language. Absolutely. So before we get into the book, I wanted to ask you both a little bit about your paths to psychoanalysis and and your relationship to it. And, you know, please feel free to take that in any direction you want, whether it has to do with, you know, your politics, your your, uh, self-conception, you know, whatever it is, however you want to answer this question. Um, maybe I'll start first. Um, so I, I discovered psychoanalysis when I was 13. Uh, I found a book on my mother's shelf, um, that was, um, what turned out to be Marie Cardinal's The Words to Say It, which is a really, uh, in-depth account of a first-person account of, um, Marie Cardinal's own psychoanalytic treatment with, 
the person with who turned out to be Michel de Muzan, who's like a French psychoanalyst who kind of like in the tradition that I ended up working in actually very weirdly weaves himself into the psychoanalysis that I've become interested in. Um, and that, uh, that book, what I remember as a 13 year old or what I fantasize as a 13 year old is that, you know, I read it and I was like really stunned by the first chapter. And it, it um, told the story of a woman who is suffering from a medical symptom and unexplained bleeding. And she gets, you meet her in a car where she's talking about the thing that can't, like nobody can cure her off. And she goes to a psychoanalyst. She attends a first session and the psychoanalyst says something really strange to her. He says, after he listens to her carefully, he says, you should come here multiple times a week. You should leave your home and make it here, even though you're agoraphobic and you should pay me. And she says, are you joking? Like I can't even get out of my house. Like I can't take care of my children. And he says, I know, but you should do it anyway. And she leaves the symptom magically stops. And then the rest of the book is much less spectacular than this kind of like really phantasmagoric beginning. It's like kind of like the very tedious and slow work of an analysis that ends up being very helpful to her. But I remember that first chapter, like really dazzling me with what it means for somebody to be making such a wild and crazy promise to somebody they don't know and making a commitment to step into the fray of something unexpected with a stranger who's in tremendous pain and to whom they cannot guarantee anything and yet doing it anyway. And I was so taken by that. And at 13, I decided that I wanted to be a psychoanalyst. Wow. So my, later in my analysis, I understood that I was also wanting a psychoanalyst and a mother of that sort, <laughs> but that came later. <laughs> now I'm thinking about psychoanalysis as an object of idealization. And I, I, I think there's some of that for me, but that would also surprise my younger self. Um, I should say that, you know, the relationship between psychoanalysis and culture has been a basically an intellectual through line in my now nearly 30 years of teaching and writing post-PhD. That was the focus of my first book, Performance Anxieties, where I look at Freud, race, and, and performance, and, and also engage in close readings of Fanon. That was itself a revision of my doctoral dissertation. So I've been thinking with and about psychoanalysis for a long, long time. And it's, been, and it's a passion, right? It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's also a passion. And that really would have surprised my much younger self. The first time I was exposed to psychoanalysis was, I think I was a senior in college. I was a, you know, a, a baby feminist, a campus activist around women's issues, around LGB issues. The Q and the T hadn't been added yet. And I was, you know, Freud was assigned in a class I was taking, I think, in the dynamics of psychology and religion. I was appalled, right? I'm like, oh my God, this is so sexist. This is so homophobic, you know, down with Freud. And, I, you know, I had a strong reaction. And I think that this strong reaction itself maybe was the beginning of something getting under my skin, right? Yeah. And because then it's like, well, why are people still reading this guy? And, and in graduate school, which overlapped with uh, the first flourishing of what would come to be called queer theory, I'm suddenly encountering these thinkers, you know, whether it's, you know, sort of Judith Butler's early work, um, you know, sort of work that's sort of coming out of comp lit and the fields of English literature, in which psychoanalysis and particular queer readings of and with psychoanalysis are helpful for deconstructing received notions of gender and sexuality. So I'm like, whoa, this psychoanalysis thing it's kind of ambivalent. It can do multiple things. And, you know, of course, psychoanalysis offers us a great theory of ambivalence. So I, I think, you know, I, I've been wrestling with psychoanalysis, finding it 
incredibly helpful, incredibly frustrating, um, fascinating, and this is and utterly compelling. And you know, I, I often joke that my two boyfriends are Freud and Foucault, who shouldn't <laughs> go together, but they work together beautifully because, I mean, in some sense, you know, like Foucault, these two men, right, have been, you know, just sort of ballast for me. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact they don't go together because I think they do. And I also psychoanalysis has taught me that they, that in fact we shouldn't have to go to go together. We shouldn't have to be unified in our desires and our very self. That's also a Foucauldian point. Yeah. Right. So um, this is, you know, I, I to my own surprise, after years of thinking with psychoanalysis, writing about it, teaching it, I came to feel that to go further, I needed to study it as a practice, to be in it as a practice. And that's just deepened my life. You know, I now have a small private practice um, in New York City. I work with a lot of queer and trans people. That's a real strong commitment of mine. But it's also just deepened my life as a person. Um, the the slowness of psychoanalysis, having also been on the couch. You know, every psychoanalyst has been on the couch themselves. But that slowness has taught me something about even being in time with others differently. It's taught me how to be a different kind of teacher. I think I'm. Um, much more able to be in the that anxious moment and moment and moment when no one speaks and hold that anxiety for my students. Mm-hmm. And I think psychoanalysis is part of what taught me that, not just years of teaching, but just, oh, you can be in the space and not know what's about to happen next and not have to fill it in immediately because you're so anxious at that sound of silence. I had a... Uh, um... So I've I've not you know taken that 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 second part of the journey right um, you know I'm I'm very firmly ensconced in the sort of academic relation to, to psychoanalysis but I will say one of the things that made me so interested in it when I was I was uh, I did my PhD at Columbia um, and uh, immediately fl- fled to Barnard as much as possible and there was a professor that I studied Kant and Hegel with. Um, and who was at the same time studying psychoanalysis at at, the, at Columbia. And he would give these lectures on on Hegel. One day I will, I will reach out to him and be like, will you come and talk to us about Hegel? And why you can't read Lacan without Hegel? But uh, I, I still remember that I have never had a, a more important role model in the classroom than when someone would ask him a question about the phenomenology of spirit. And he would turn, he would take would hold the bridge of his nose. The rest of you can't see me doing this, but I'm holding the bridge of my nose. And he would just stop and he would think for like two, three, four, five minutes with what seemed to be absolutely no self-consciousness. I'm sure that wasn't true. But, and then he would deliver an unbelievable, so thoughtful response. And I was like, there is something to that. <laughs> like that, I, I really, I was working on psychoanalytic theory at that point, but that was the moment for me where I was just like, oh, something is here that like, yeah. So, and another, another time, and we will have to talk about like psychoanalysis and pedagogy. That's, that's, I, I can, I'm already planning another, another episode. All right. I'm holding the bridge of my nose in excitement. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I, I can't help but notice in, in all three of, of the different sort of uh, narratives and vignettes that you, you, you've all so graciously offered is this, uh, these themes uh, of, of, of sort of ambivalence and open-endedness and also this kind of uh, an intellectual sort of journey that we don't necessarily know where it's going to go, but also it's interpersonally grounded where, and the stakes are so very real. And this to me is, seems so 
so it, both so difficult to articulate, but so fundamental to, to, to the theory you do and, and to the practices that you both do. And and I was so struck towards the end of, of the book as well about this by one line that, that uh, I've struck a many of them, but this one is, is psychoanalysis perhaps more than any other discourse is capable of navigating nuance and offering depth to how gender and sexuality accrue their psychic density, how they come undone and get redone. And, mm-hmm. and in addition to just being beautiful, I, I felt like that there was something about the way just conjuring this idea of a space where there isn't a given teleology, where there isn't a, a, a given outcome, but where you're going to be with someone who's going to help you self-reflect and who's also going to be engaged in a type of reflection on their own part. And that, that that's offered in a, it's not like orthopedic or something. It's being given to you generously and with risk and, 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 and the ability to, to perceive that in a, in a field that, also has well the ambivalence to see to perceive almost the tragedy and the stakes of what's happened what happens when that is not an animating principle uh seems to me just to be so so much of what's at play here i i I love that you're making this kind of like meta observation about our three stories because i was actually also thinking about how between the three of us there's there's something about the ambivalence of it but but to me it also like my story is not just about idealization it's also about the wonder that the wondrous aspect of a psychoanalysis and kind of like that connects us kind of like part of what we're trying to do in this book is speaking about what it means to be both wandering in a flannering kind of way but also being in wonder yeah which psychoanalysis much more to philosophy than to therapeutic practice of mm-hmm. some teleological resolution that kind of like drains trauma or drains difficulty out of the psyche, which is what kind of like more psychological, mental health, neoliberal approaches are working towards. Part of what psychoanalysis has to offer and what's so radical about it is is, and this is very Arendtian in some way, is to be in the life that we are in is to love what is and to live with what is, including the trauma and the ugliness, and to pay attention and help defend, and this will take us to a conversation about allyship and accomplices, help defend the different kinds of ways in which people try to craft a life out of what has been handed to them intergenerationally, culturally, and psychically. I did feel wonder as something that actually really underwrites the the book. And I, I was I was thinking about it this week in in my own classes. We were reading um a little bit of Susan Stryker's transgender history. And uh there's and this is this is for this is a 200 level class. It's introductory. Um so they're really trying to get some concepts and terms and whatnot. But there's a line that that always strikes so many of my students who are struggling with a sort of brain hurt that Patrick was 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 quoting you on. Um, and Stryker says something like, well, why is it that we don't respond with wonder as opposed to, you know, horror um, or revulsion? Like, why is the latter the cultural response to, you know, quote unquote, non-normative forms of, of gender or sexuality. And it does seem to me that the book is very much underwritten by a, a sort of ethic of wonder um, and opening onto that, which I thought was, was really lovely. But anyway, that's enough of me. Let me get into asking you more about the book. Can you tell us a bit about what led you 
to first collaborate on it and and also just what brought this book into being. Um, and I will say that my sense as a reader is that it comes about not necessarily in reaction, but at least in part in response to what you call at the beginning of Gender Without Identity, quote unquote, repressive forces within psychoanalysis itself. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about both the origin story of the book and also about what you mean by these repressive forces within psychoanalysis, whether that is in terms of concepts or institutions or both. Well, the the, the genealogy of this book starts with um, a clinical case that is in the book described in some detail of a child that I worked with um, who presented with kind of like assigned male at birth and presented with a lot of kind of like very intense femininity that the family was very anxious about. And I had written this paper and presented it in a few places, working with Jean Laplanche's theory. And then um, as we, as, as like the paper was developing, I realized that there was a lot that I was missing in relation to the fact that this child comes from an Orthodox Jewish family. And this is not a domain that I'm very experienced in or knowledgeable about. So um, Anne, whose domain is very much also thinking about religion and thinking about religion and psychoanalysis, uh, felt to me like uh, they could add something quite significant to the depth of this paper. So I reached out to them and asked them about collaborating on it. Um, And Anne, do you want to take it from here? Sure. So, you know, you know, I'd also had the benefit of hearing Avi present this clinical work and actually re- being really moved by it, the, the, the sensitivity of the work, and um, just the, and also all the questions this case had opened up. Um, so I was really excited at the idea of thinking together. So, you know, I started sort of reading it with an eye towards like how, you know, how are questions of religion and a racialized religion, given the history of anti-Semitism, how might that also be part of, be braided into gender? And here, a gender that the family was very concerned about, that the family felt to be non-normative. And, you know, how do we, that that non-normativity isn't just about gender, right? The it's gender that exceeds binary, but again, these, these racialized and religionized histories. So we started sort of passing the paper back and forth. I'd add something, probably would then write into what I added. We were you know, sometimes also reorganizing the sequence of the paper structurally as we were trying to both use theory to think with the paper, but have the paper reflect back on the case materials actually changing theory. So it was actually a very pleasurable um, experience and challenging, right? Because we're not the same person. We come from different um, intellectual formations. So I think, I know I learned a lot in, in sort of doing, doing this with Avi. I, um, she taught me a lot, certainly. And we were really happy with how the sort of revised piece came out and we submitted it um, for uh, to be considered for the first ever Tiresias Prize, which was being given out by the International Psychoanalytical Association by um, a, a gender and sexual diversity committee, which was, I think the committee was formed maybe in 2017. And this was the inaugural prize that was going to basically recognize work in the field of psychoanalysis that was basically sort of like pushing the edges of gender and sexuality within psychoanalytic theory. It was, they were also looking, they were interested in work that was intersectional. So we submitted this paper for consideration and we're delighted to actually receive the prize. And one of the potential rewards of, of this prize was that you 
the paper would be considered for publication in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis, which is a very prestigious journal. It's the oldest journal in the field. It was founded by Freud himself. So, you know, that um, started the publication journal with IJP. I'm going to hand the baton back to Avi. We submitted the paper um, and um, went through a year-long process, almost a year-long with um, going back and forth, as as papers do when you submit them for publication, sure. um, with the editors, uh, changed the paper, added things, uh, modified our own thinking in response to the editor's comments. And then right when we were about to move to the paper, was accepted um, multiple times. Um, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm on the IJP's part. And right as we were moving towards publication, we're going to add... Um, some clarifying paragraphs about some points we're making and um, add a footnote, basically acknowledging the committee's work. It's it's important to understand the context here, which is that the IPA has not had a gender and a committee on sex and gender until 2017. That is, that says a lot about where psychoanalysis is in relation to thinking about sexual complexity and polymorphism. So it, it was kind of a big deal politically for that uh, committee to be there, for that award to be even instituted. So we wanted to acknowledge that work. So we added a footnote um, acknowledging that work and also saying explicitly that we um, that we are welcoming, that we want this paper to stand as a welcome to queer and trans subjects, to psychoanalysis, not just as patients, but also as colleagues and as our teachers and our supervisors um, and our kind of like you know colleagues, not just um, kind of like in in the power position of being uh, our kind of like the people we treat, and that um, that really changed everything. Uh, we were told that this paper could not be published like this. Initially, it was we were told that it was for our protection that it shouldn't be published like this because that kind of political focus, and I'm putting the word political in quotes. Um, in air quotes, that focus that is political, meaning distractive of psychoanalysis, um, would undermine the points that we were making. And we said some version of we're grown-ups, we're experienced authors, we'll take that risk. This is our paper. And it, then it became clear that it was not a risk that we would be allowed to take. The journal would not permit it. So we were given an ultimatum, either give them the previous version of the paper or not get published. And Anne and I thought a lot about what it means for the first Series CS Prize to not follow the path that was designated for it and to not circulate in a journal that, frankly, reaches parts of the world that few places do because it's so established. And what would be the ethics of refusing this publication or basically cauterizing some of our ideas in order to make it possible? And we we were very clear that we were not going to cut up our paper for the purposes of, of publication. Um, and then after that, it, things became quite ugly uh, with the journal. They were they both told us that they wouldn't take it and we could make our decision. But then when we said that we would take it elsewhere, then things got really um, ugly. There were um, intimations of legal threats. Um, we We ended up deciding that we had to push through that and approach the Unconscious in Translation Press. Jonathan House was very welcoming of this volume. He 
He said, this should come as no surprise that somebody should say this in terms of academic freedom. But after the traumatic experience that we had, it meant a lot to us. He said, you have like carte blanche from it, write whatever you want, even things that I might disagree with, just write the book that you want to write. So we wrote the book that we wanted to write and we included the TRCS paper in it. I mean, it was a really stunning experience. I mean, Avi and I both have published extensively. I also, as someone who's been editing other people's work, whether as a journal co-editor or editing a book series, not once in my career have I had my acknowledgements edited before, nor have I ever touched the acknowledgements of an author I'm working with. So just at the level of like, that was just shocking. You're, what you're editing are acknowledgements. There are whole sentences that were highlighted that we were told to take out. And we're actually, we actually reproduce our original acknowledgements as an early footnote in Gender Without Identity. So you can see what we were told to take out. And it's quite shocking. So, I, I mean, it was really, it shook us, this experience. I'm sure. And it, um, we were, I mean, to have then this invitation from, from Jonathan House, like, okay, write whatever you want, right? And, and actually even delighted at the idea that we might write something he disagreed with. That was wonderful permission. But it wasn't easy to take that permission. In the course of doing it, I think there were moments when we were like, because we, we're also thinking about the political implications of our arguments and something I'm sure we'll talk about some more. We were worried about how some of the things we're saying about gender identity and the pressure we're placing on it. We don't want it being weaponized right. against queer and trans people. So we actually had numerous moments in the course of writing this, again, some of which I think was a response to our experience with the journal, but some of which is also just our worry about the context in which we're writing these arguments and in which they'll circulate. Like, can we say this? Is it safe to say this? How is it too risky to say this because of what others might do with it and not do with it to us that we've yeah. had this experience of something being done to us, but due to, you know, pe- communities we're part of, and we're both part of the queer community due to people we love, due to people we don't know, but we care about because we, you know, we care about people we haven't even met. That's a nice way to be in the world. This whole saga is, is just, gobsmacking to me and i i I, I was trying to come up with the right word to articulate exactly just from the from the from the way in which it's it's so overdetermined on the one hand right i mean the the tiresias award right and as as you all lay out in 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 the book but as some of our audience may not be aware it's a figure from greek myths who among other things is is punished for um, a sort of complicated series of relations to sexual pleasure across uh, sexual difference, and then it inhabits the bodies of men and women, and is it's it's a it's a whole family drama among among the Greek gods. People can check out, and I encourage them to do that. But just like that overdetermination right there, to then punishing you, but also it, to speak in in, in more uh, presentist terms, what you describe about the self questioning is is so clearly what is at stake in so much of our discourse about like censorship and chilling effects of censorship. And then on top of that, to just, and having read the the acknowledgements, the fact that the quote unquote problematic, I suppose, I, I'm not sure how they describe those sentences, sentences, quote unquote political. <laughs> yeah. The political sentences. Well, first, if they're an acknowledgement, the, again, I, I, I second like any intervention into acknowledgement is just, it feels extremely bizarre to me. And, and I, I, I was trying to reach for some analogy, like if someone had put a, a land acknowledgement or something in a paper on settler colonialism and an editor being like, no, we, we can't could consign this because it, again, they don't, they don't quite map on and we could get into a conversation about land acknowledgements, but, but independent of that, like I can't think of an analogy even there, but, but also the fact that the, the core gesture seemed to simply be acknowledging past harm in terms of what psychoanalysis and, and, and psychodynamic schools of thought have done to people who are of minoritarian sort of identities, but also 
just simply welcoming and acknowledging the existence of colleagues and patients and peers who might come from those communities, it it seems all the more bizarre to me insofar as that, but just thinking back to my own analytic training, and it, it, one of the themes that we were continually being sort of given and asked to sort of relate to was this sense that psychoanalysis in the U.S. at least is, is supposedly moribund, that people, at the time people were turning away from it, that we needed new blood, we needed to welcome in new communities. So like there was this constant emphasis almost on the level of like interpolating people, right? Above and beyond, just like, please welcome them. And then to have this kind of acting out, like, no, we don't want to feel, we, we don't want to welcome more people. And also we want to drive home the fact that the people who are already here are actually not welcome, or at least should question whether they are. It, it's, it's, it, it, I mean, it's shameful, but it's also just, it feels unhinged to me. Like, I don't understand how adults could do this and good. I'm sorry. I'm going to. It's also like the most Freudian enactment possible when you think about that it happens in the footnotes, right? <laughs> the sort of like the thing that, that is supposed to be um, marginal is actually central and vice versa. And it was also supposed to happen behind the scenes. I mean, right. this is what the footnote is, right? So we are making visible but a, a certain, a dirty and ongoing history that psychoanalysis doesn't want to be seen. And moreover, we, you know, in some sense, you know, we also made the decision to lead with this in writing the book yeah. that we didn't intend to write, right? We, in some sense, we're, we, we, in some sense, we were, as it were, driven to write a book we hadn't intended to write <laughs> and out of this experience. And we decided to include this experience and to write about it with some care because it's not simply about we're working through our own experience, but actually we thought this was emblematic of something that isn't just about us. This isn't just our story. Mm-hmm. It says something about the, panic of a psychoanalysis that's closing in on itself. Mm-hmm. And we believe in psychoanalysis. And as we say in the, you know, the introduction to her book, that there maybe there are things that psychoanalysis, actually in psychoanalysis that have to die, that have to change radically if psychoanalysis is to live and offer to people the amazing resources we also believe it has to offer. The, the radical possibilities, including the radical possibilities of getting to sit in a room with someone. What an unbelievable thing to sit in the room with someone once twice, three times, four times a week, and not know where it's going to go, to wonder and wander. I mean, wow, this is such also a strike against the regimentations, whether of 24-7 gig culture or the regimentations of, you know, the clock time of like when you have to show up at work. It's, we really believe psychoanalysis has so much to offer that's enriching, right? And um, so it felt necessary to, you know, to, that was our cold open for the book, I suppose. <laughs> and perhaps like, I, I want to add something here. Like I want to read a sentence from the acknowledgements that, that might be useful, Please. which is, this is how it, it ends. Uh, the footnote ends. May future generations of queer and trans analysts and patients never encounter what many of us who are queer identified have had to. That more than anything is the vision of our work in this paper. So you know, it is that naming as praxis that generated the pushback. And, and when we were told that they would not publish the paper like this, I actually said, I come from a culture that is very, people are very direct too. So I actually wrote to them and said, um, is this what you want to be known for, for retracting your publication commitments? Right. I mean, this is unheard of. Um, and kind of like, it's very clear what's happening here. Like homotransphobia is at work. And do you want it to be known for censorship? And it was at this point when the word censorship was used 
the threats of legal, not, it, it was not an explicit threat. It was an intimation mm-hmm. that, um, that legal language is used, that this is calumny, that um, kind of like the, the implication was that uh, we should retract that way of speaking. Um, so kind of like this idea of what can be said out loud, what can be named, um, and the fantasy that psychoanalysis has of itself, that it is open to free speech, when in fact, there's so much regulation and so much um, um, like disciplining of what goes into the proper discipline of psychoanalysis. So one of our projects in this book is to argue for a psychoanalysis that can partly die and partly get screwed mm-hmm. so that it can be done differently. Because the psychoanalysis that we have right now in these parts of the world is not just not working, it is actually damaging. I feel like this really leads us into a question that I have, because one of the things I know Patrick has already alluded to this, but one of the things that we both loved about the book is, is how just, you know, really elegantly and and seamlessly it toggles back and forth between the clinical and the theoretical. That's, that's a really hard thing to do and to do well. And to me, it was one of the most honestly moving parts of the book is that it feels to me, and I think you've been speaking to this already, that there is that it's propelled by a very strong ethical vision about the role of the analyst. Um, and that includes refusing a whole host of traps that you outline, um, refusing, for instance, the idea that that gender and that sexuality are these sort of like timeless ontological unchanging essences, right? refusing um, what you call the born this way narrative um, and refusing also the, the sort of frequent clinical preoccupation with like, let's hunt down. Like what is the etiology of gender identity? What is the etiology of, of sexual identity? And uh, you know, you gloss this vision at one point you're, you're quoting Marquis Bay um, as analyst, as accomplice, rather than as ally, which I think is, is, is very elegant, both in the original and as you're using it here. So I hope uh, what I want to ask is, can you both talk to us a little bit about that vision and what it entails both theoretically and also pragmatically, you know, when you're, when you're in the room? Maybe I'll come into this through the classroom door first. Mm. Right. Cause I, you know, I, I've, much of my teaching career, you know, I've been teaching career theory. Um, and, you know, I'm, this is, you know, passionate and I'm passionate about it. I, you know, love exposing students to these ideas. Um, and, you know, one of the basic sort of claims of queer and feminist theories, at least the queer and feminist theories that matter to me, is that gender and sexuality are socially constructed. That the ways in which people live, what we call gender and live, what we call sexuality, have varied historically. They value, they have varied culturally, that even the, these the notion of having uh, an in, you know a sexual identity or having a gender identity this is itself a kind of a, something in historical construction mm-hmm. and you know I've been teaching variations on these ideas for a long long time for more you know like 30 years if I include graduate school teaching more than 30 years 
and students like go for it, right? They're, you know, they're um, they're excited to be introduced to these ideas with you know whether it's historical work or you know sort of more theoretical work, and so they get the macro level. Wow, gender and sexuality are socially constructed, but and there's a there's an incident that we actually include in the introductory section of our book, which happened in a classroom of mine. It was a class called Introduction to Lesbian and Gay Studies. That, you know, now it would have been Intro to LGBTQ Studies, right? Different you know, terms of art or classes. But you know, this I've been teaching Foucault, and the student maybe was sort of impatient with, "Oh my God, so much Foucault!" But also, <laughs> this was a great student. You know, raised their hand as like, you know, I get it, I get it, I get it. Sexuality socially constructed, but sure, what made me a lesbian? And it was just an amazing question because, of course, I didn't know, right? And it's not simply that I didn't know. The theories I was teaching and the, and the social histories I was teaching, these, again, wonderful macro-level accounts that, I kind of, that detonate the notion of timeless ontological categories. But these theories can't say and, uh, and help give us an explanation for the ways these theories touch down in our individual lives and the ways in which we take up these categories. For that, psychoanalysis is an incredibly supple offering. At least a psychoanalysis that doesn't itself get hung up on etiology, we can find the one true thing that caused this, but rather psychoanalysis as an opening to how do we story ourselves? How do we live in relation to the social demand legibly to be gendered, legibly to be able to articulate our sexual desire? Again, itself something we should ask. Why do we have to narrate these at all? But psychoanalysis can help us and help people we sit with, you know, maybe give an account of themselves in a way that has more flexibility, more possibilities for life flourishing. And so this is before I was myself an analyst, but it seemed intuitively that here's this other body of theory and set of practices that can help, not as an opposition to the macro level, whether it's Foucault, you know, but but together they do something really interesting in part because they're also incommensurable, right? And that incommensurability, rather than a problem, how do the micro and the macro fit together, is the space we live in. Yeah, yeah. I would also like to loop back to your question about accomplices. Like, you know, part of what we wanted to do is sketch a framework for thinking about the analyst's participation uh, in work with especially um, queer and trans individuals uh, so the classic approach to psychoanalysis is, a, is the analyst neutrality um, and the more progressive, and I put this in quotes again, um, new revision of it is kind of like allyship, the question of like how to be an ally to difference. But what Marquis Bay offers, which um, we thought was very generative, is this notion that um, kind of like an ally is just perhaps like rooting for you from kind of like from the sidelines, whereas an accomplice steps in and gets sullied in the struggle. Mm-hmm. And what we mean by that clinically, when we talk about getting sullied in the struggle, is actually being willing to relinquish our prized um, theories that don't work for patients, that certainly transness has proved to psychoanalysis or confronted psychoanalysis with a brain hurt, that our theories don't work when it comes to gender, especially the 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 this fiction of like a core gender identity, which was initially offered to us as a way of making room ostensibly for difference by Stoller, and we can talk more about that. They just don't work. So to be to be an accomplice is to also 
work in a way that helps patients defend their self-theorizations and see if the experiments, and gender is always an experiment, that they engage with can take, uh, whether they can take in this world, in the world that they are in, in the family that they're in, in the relationship that they choose to forge, and kind of like what of the world will change, their world, and what of them will change. And that is a non-teleological project. Like you don't know where it will go. And if you're starting with a premise uh, of this, I know that this is a patient who is misguided about their gender or with a premise that I know what this patient's gender is. So therefore my goal is to help them be the gender that they are. You're starting with a teleological premise. One is more constrictive and the other one looks more kind of like welcoming of difference. Um, but to be an accomplice is to to be willing to risk things in your own thinking and the thinking that stabilizes you in the consulting room with a patient so that so that you can step into the wondrous with a patient. You have several passages where you just sort of describe how an analyst might view the existence or in their office of, of a transgender patient as actually an invitation to to precisely the type of open-ended journeys I think that you alluded to in in, in your opening discussion of, 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 of Marie Callender even, right? This idea of like, you're, let's do this together and see what happens. It, and it, it's, it's, it's thrown in such sharp relief too, as, as you argue in the book, by, by the fact that if, if one were to flip the script and consider how analysts have traditionally worked with people of, of, of normative cisgender presentations, they're constantly doing things like, talking about how someone is experiencing themselves as, I don't know, a, a mother and a housewife or, or, or my, my concerns about masculinity, et cetera. And it's not from the position of, well, I have a definite vision of how you should be sex and gender. That we're we're going to sort of like orthopedically work you into that. There seems to be this underlying commitment to mark a certain population as being reduced to an identity which is taken as a problematic symptom that has to be corrected rather than taking them as a person. And it, it's, it's so... Um, it's so glaringly obvious in some ways when you articulate it in these terms. Gender polymorphism is not a symptom to be resolved any more than gender typicality is. It This, uh, this floored me because, again, it is both, I think, ethically and, and, and morally obvious as a statement. And yet there is this entire edifice of theory and implicit practice that militates against that. And I, I found myself coming back to the, the case history of the patient of, of, of young Ori uh, that you were, uh, that's, that's at the core of the book and which is profoundly moving and, and, and very distressing to read. And, and how this young person had, it, uh, among other things, had been, well, his father, who you name Aaron, relates essentially this ultimatum to you, Avi, that like, I, I, actually, I had to, I'm going to quickly just read it because I had it in front of me and I want to, it, it is also very overdetermined in these themes of welcoming or just simply being allowed to exist independent of a teleology. So uh, Aaron briskly interrupted me. You should know that if he becomes a homosexual, he would not be welcome in our home. It's not like we would have him over for family dinner with his boyfriend. That's not the kind of family we have. It's not the life we live. And I don't mean he'd have to leave when he grows up. He added with force. But as soon as it's clear that that's where he is heading. And something there about the like, well, setting aside even the fact that like 
the options presumably here are, are straight or homosexual and like who knows like what what Aaron may or may not have been aware of in terms of like trans or, or gender queer possibilities. But this idea that the an implicit teleology, like what this child is going to become, has its correlative in the present now. Like not only can we determine what he's going to be, but if there's the possibility that he is going to use this using the pronouns the father does, he's gone. The stakes of that are just so incredibly urgent. And I, I guess I, I'm both making a certain observation here or drawing some themes together, but I'm also thinking about the character of your relationship with this young patient and, and, and the, the character of like simply being in the room with, with them as a kind of accomplicehood even. I, I, I'm not sure how to describe this, but I, I was, I just, I, I kind of want to talk about the case. That's all right. In, in some ways, it, it did, uh, this may not, we, we may cut this, but I, I, I knew this was good. I yeah. actually read it first and told Patrick that this was going to land really hard for him. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very meaningful to me personally, but it, it I just wanted this child to be safe in this mm-hmm. basic way. And, and it, it brought home to me the way in which like the theoretical it, it is not theoretical. Absolutely. Absolutely. Part of what this case fleshes out so well is, and, and part of what it felt like to me in the room as a clinician sitting with a family like this and with a child um, who is struggling to be himself is that the stakes are not like up here, like I say up here and I'm kind of like (laughs) doing like a move. Like they're not like this cerebral intellectual, like they have such real um, implications in the consulting room, like immediately, like right now. And to hear as a child therapist, to hear a parent say, you know what, if this goes in this direction, we're going to kick him out of the house, which is effectively what the father is saying, is really chilling. It's chilling in a way that makes you realize that the work that needs to be done, which is non-teleological, which opens up to a variety of different possibilities, is exactly the kind of thing that could actually get this kid kicked out of their home. And that kind of like makes the ethical stakes of how to work then with a child like this incredibly high. Of course, one cannot side with the, we are all now going to work to make this child adapt to the reality that the family wants, if if that were even possible, which it isn't. But the stakes of, so we're working towards something that is open-ended and might go in a different direction are are very, um, they're very high. And it's kind of like, it's the risk is very high and and it's it's scary to be in that place as a clinician. Um, So when I was working with with Ori, I was always um, kind of like keeping these two things in mind, which is, if you think about it on a metal level, it's very parallel to what happens with a paper. Uh, and this question of like, what can be said and where this can go and where this will not be allowed to go. Mm-hmm. And w- what we decide to do with a paper is to say, this should go where it needs to go, whether it ends up in the IJP or not. Now, it's not the same for, you cannot say this for a child. Uh, once autonomy requires that the child makes their own I'm not going to say decision because these are not conscious processes, but to take their own path. But what we can offer as clinicians is a sturdiness of staying with that path. And in the book, we kind of like I described the case and how I worked with that and how I tried to create the space for for him to open up into it. Um, So 
you know, that, that is very important. I don't know if you would like to talk more about the case, but I, I also wanted to add something. Please. When I was saying earlier, like, you know, you open it up without a teleology and things, and then you see where things go. The critique usually against that is, oh, they're experimenting with children. What do you mean where things go? Like children need to be protected. But the thing is that psychoanalysis, when it works with normative experience, is always organized around the question of, let's see where things go. All of our work is about tracking how things evolve. Mm -hmm. And we do not understand that as an ethically dubious practice, except when it comes to non-normative experience. There, the notion of psychic experimentation, which is intrinsic to all psychic life, all of a sudden produces kind of like a moral panic that theory comes to, classical theory comes to solidify into the in order to protect children, we shouldn't be going there. Yeah. And it was it was actually one of the things that in some sense surprised us as we were developing you know this paper into a book, is that actually psychoanalysis is just replete with um, attempts to track the vicissitudes of normative gender. Yeah. And its various becomings and to and the particular traumas that inflect it and shape it and you know responding to that. And but never with an eye to oh well if you're having these bad experiences as someone who identifies as a woman and is identified culturally as a woman maybe you should actually be trans or non-binary like psychoanalysis doesn't try to change someone's normative gender it tries to make it more habitable like can you flourish in it right so we're like wait so why can psychoanalysis do it for these subjects and not these others now in some sense we know there are all sorts of reasons why and that are not specific to psychoanalysis right but it's you know, part of our project in the book is to say, look, let's expand to let's extend to various non-normative subjects, non-normative with respect to gender or sexuality, the same kind of dignity that is routinely given to subjects who you know do their gender and sexuality in normative or dominant ways. Yeah, no, right? absolutely. And also has a toolkit for that yeah. already. It's. I mean, I, I can't in some ways imagine something that that has a, a more capacious toolkit for that. I mean. Think about 1905, right? The three essays on the theory of sexuality. And I mean, gender is an accomplishment. Like that's, you know, that's that always blows my students' minds when I'm like, yeah, Freud knew that, that like it's not something that you're that you're simply born with, right? And and one of the things, and and Anne, you were you were gesturing to this, but but I think it's it's one of the 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 things that I I see your book as you're you're saying. And it it seems shocking at first, whereas you're like, hey, sometimes gender has something to do with trauma. But if you look at the history of psychoanalysis, there is not a single case study that is dealing with gender or sexuality that is not intimately tracing uh, childhood experiences and most of which are in some way traumatic. Like that, those two things have been drawn together since the inception of this entire way of thinking. And and I see you too as authors having to guard against a sort of misreading, a willful misreading that's like, oh, well, non-normative genders, non-normative sexualities have something to do with trauma. That must mean that they're wrong or bad, or malformed. But in fact, I mean, what I what I see you saying is something that's actually baked into the field itself, which is that, that as you were saying, Avi, gender is always 
an experiment. It is always a teleological. And the peregrinations of our lives are things that are hedged about, not only with our own individual traumas, but with the inheritance of our parents' traumas. And, and the fact that, that you do have to do that sort of hedging against willful misreadings, I mean, is, is, really, is really something. I mean, I, I love your kind of like pulling out that thread because it is indeed in the tradition of psychoanalysis to think with trauma. Um, and it is, it is both true that we treat trauma differently when it comes to non-normativity. But it's also true, I think, that psychoanalysis has a very ambivalent relationship with trauma. Um, and kind of like there are many ways in which psychoanalysis understands itself as having as its goal to resolutely drain trauma out of the psyche, to cure it, to heal it, to work through it. And th- the second major argument that we're making in the book, in addition to really going after the notion of core gender identity, is to push for an understanding of psychic life that builds a tolerance for thinking about how trauma gets spinned into our psychic life, that it doesn't get excised or expunged, um, however good your resources, um, however committed you might be to treatment. um, We do things with our trauma and gender is one of the things that can be done with trauma. And I don't say we do in the sense of a volitional subject who selects from a smorgasbord of options, but um, that unconscious forces syndicate with trauma to create things out of it. And these are what comes out of these processes is a result of our autonomy. It's, it's an expression of our autonomy. And it is that which we argue is the analyst's ethical responsibility to affirm in, in, in treatment, like the, uh, the patient's self-theorizations, the, what the patient's psyche secretes in response to trauma. You know, our, our patients, as well as the clinicians sitting with patients, have inherited um, I, what Avi has actually called in um, her book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, this sort of traumatic phobic way of thinking about trauma, that if trauma's happened to you, it's bad. Right. Let's excise or heal its, its residues. Um, losing sight of the ways in which trauma is an energy someone we do things with as it does things to us. And, but because of the ways in which, again, we're heir to this traumatophobic thinking as patients, as clinicians, it makes it very hard for the, the clinician and for the patient to actually start thinking about traumas that have happened to this person um, without the, just that talk about it to start to hurdle into an etiological account. Oh, that must be why in this way, oh my God, if I talk about any relationship between this trauma and how I am, this discredits how I am. And this is, again, especially dangerous because that association between trauma and identity, I'll put identity in quotes, has been weaponized in our current cultural conversations about queerness of gender and queerness of sexuality. So, you know, even just trying to rethink what trauma is, what it does, opens space for, for an individual to start thinking about their own life experience in a way that, again, it's non-etiological, 
not deterministic. That again, it, it creates an opening, but so much has to be shaken loose. Here, theory does matter of the ways in which clinicians are taught to think about and theorize trauma, right? That, that's in the room with us. And, and, and popular versions of that are, are in the room for all of us, not just in therapy rooms, right? Um, the cultural shape of trauma is, is then it's bad. Let's get rid of it. It, it's worth, I was going to, I'll ventriloquize some of these sort of meta narratives with, without co-signing any of them, right? To, to give it a bald shape. Like I think just to, what I was, what occurred to me are all the different ways in which it's like, well, this person has a trauma, therefore they are broken. They're stuck at this point. Their entire way of being is merely a sort of a perverse reenactment of that trauma or a passing it on to others. All these sort of various kind of like fairly flat, narratives of, of that you know you could already reduce a person to a trauma but also seem to like they do seem underwritten by and it, it, there there's so many paradoxes in this right but, but both by a fear of trauma but by a desire to protect the others one supposedly stands in for exemplarily children like that's their role as symbols in, in so much cultural discourse to protect them from trauma but of course what that winds up almost inevitably doing is just reperpetrating trauma in a different way or, or somehow blinding. I, I get the image of, of one of the things that, that Ori's parents make him do is like to sit on his hands to prevent him from making hand gestures that they think must be sort of effeminate. And that idea of like, like adults sort of sitting up there, sitting on their hands or throwing up their hands instead of just letting this child be. And, and the damage that accrues there is so. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's so much. It's, it's so overwhelming. And so clearly there's an ethical mandate not to do that. And, and I think here too, in a, in a related mode of a lot of the, the narratives that what one gets about, and again, these are not narratives I'm co-signing, I'm just articulating them of like how, well, what we want from trauma is like resilience, right? Which generally means a particular type of adaptiveness, right? Or generally productivity. It's, it's a human capital term, I think, in a lot of cases, right? Like I was traumatized and now I'm an activist in this field of trauma and look at me. And it's just a different way of being reduced to the trauma as opposed to people, I think of like people who may, not, who may not, who just live, right? Or who enact it in some way. But in any event, there's a non, there's a normativity to the trauma narrative in so many of these cases. And it, I think it, 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 it's, it, it's both, surprising and I guess shouldn't be surprising that psychoanalysts of all people would fall into the trap on some level of, of, of having their own versions of this, uh, or, or, or it's, it's a, it's a thing that, as, as you say, would require substantial countertransference work to work through, uh, or at least should. Yeah. This is such a terrific point. Uh, I want to kind of like take it up from a slightly different angle, Please. uh, kind of like, put it in a Foucauldian context that Foucault is somebody who I've learned to engage with through Anne. I'm in a study group that, that they teach and have learned a lot from them about it. But here's, here's what I would say, like part of what we try to do in gender without identity is take an unusual approach to trauma to say that trauma produces more than just misery, even as misery is neither to be denied or diminished. And to, um, to speak to how kind of like there is this psychoanalytic fiction that if trauma is addressed, it recedes. And that is a belief that, of course, prevails outside the psychoanalytic domain. And popular culture likes to imagine that personal and structural injuries may be worked through and free the subject from their incisions if you do good work, if you're committed to it. And the question is not to say trans people are not broken. It's to say, why is it so hard to, for us to accept that we're all, to a larger or smaller degree, broken? And that rather than healing or repair, at best, we all craft lives in the aftermath of trauma, which, which goes 
which goes to Abbe's kind of like reminding us that psychoanalysis has always been preoccupied with trauma. So, you know, this critique is not to imply that political or ethical struggles for betterment should be abdicated or that we should give into social injustices or transphobia or homophobia. It, and it's not like I believe that we have nothing to offer to traumatize patients, but I'm, I'm deeply concerned about this burgeoning neoliberal economies that promise impossible healing and lure us with the seductive promises of contemporary medicine men who tell us that we can overcome pain. Um, and a lot of what we do um, in this book and what the case with Ori tries to show is that um, I should say that, you know, as I work with Ori in the case, like I, I offer space for, for them to be able to come in and do a variety of different things with touching fabrics and slowly they, they open up and they, we never talk about their gender per se, mm -hmm. um, which has become so heavy in the treatment in their family that talking about it would just make it over, over heavy. Um, what they do is they are allowed to be themselves. So they talk to me about fabrics. They talk to me about kind of like basically their aesthetic experience. And eventually they talk to me about orchids and we get an orchid that we're going to care for together. And then something really striking happens. Um, this is supposed to become an object that we can share. So the orchid arrives, or it comes in, there's two branches to the orchid. And as they're teaching me where I should place it, how to water it, they announce that the plant is fabulous, uh, which kind of like I hear as a transferential statement that it's going to do very well in my office. And as we talk about the orchid, I ask in a way that felt actually quite, I, I was quite unaware of it in the moment. I said, oh, I see that this orchid has like two branches. One of it is supported and the other is kind of hanging. Do we need to do anything about that? It's kind of like bent to the side. And at the moment, I thought that consciously it was a question that was addressed by me, who's like an, an orchid, kind of like uh, kind of like completely clueless about orchids, um, to somebody who knows a lot about orchids. But but then they fell silent, and and then I realized that what I had asked about the unsupported stem, which much more complicated, and then they tell me something about how their mother has tried to fix a bent stem in an orchid at home and accidentally broke it and the plant died. And that's a really, really hard moment where for the first time we're talking about their family, for the first time they're introducing something new. And I say something which anybody who's a child clinician would understand as a very reasonable thing to say. I say to them, it seems that your mother thought that there was something wrong about the bent stem. And hurt the plant when in fact it seems that it looked just fine the way that it was it was just a different plant it was just bent to the side and one would think that that would be a very helpful statement to a child that feels constantly suppressed disciplined in their body told what to do with their hands how to speak that their voice is too high pitched that they're using the wrong gestures that that would offer a place of identification but what happens after that is that Ori never comes back to see me again, which is a very painful thing for a clinician to happen. Um, and so we work a lot in the book with like, why did this happen? And what we come to is that I am so preoccupied with their trauma that I don't work as, as strongly as I should have, if I could do it again, with their resilience. 
they're not there to talk to me about the bad stem. They're there to talk to me about how the orchid survives and how the orchid thrives and where it should be put. And they want my participation in it. And I am so ensconced in a traumatophobic way of thinking that I do something that is very justified. I'll put this in air quotes clinically in the moment, but it's not where they need to go. Um, so that that kind of like is a very concrete example of like how traumatophobia works, even as it understands itself as doing something helpful and supportive and why it can be so problematic. I did. I'll just confess, like I, I found myself very identifying with this child and with and I felt myself like having this desperate desire. To, I do this with most case studies I read, like I want to know what happens next. Right. But I, I felt with this child in particular, I just wanted this child to be OK. Yeah. And I think it's, I'm, I'm trying, I'm thinking here about many things at once and I hope I'm not being too charitable to some of the interlocutors or people who've tried to shut you down. Right. But, but I'm thinking about the, dis- the idea of the distress of children and, yes. and, and the desire to protect them in some way. But, but if I think we take all the, the many things that you've observed, you both observed so seriously, this idea that well, sexuality or, or, or dealing with, with gender always involves some kind of trauma. Right, which doesn't achieve in trauma, rather, but that, but that this is, or or, the, or that the nature of autonomy is going to entail some sort of inevitable trauma. <laughs> then it, it it becomes clear that, that you can't protect. It's not within our totalizing power, whether we be parents, you know, uncles, or or, or therapists, to to protect them. It, it, and in fact, that that type of protection is actually. Well, I'm being a little associationistic, but this secures me. Like this is the sort of the neoliberal security frame in some way, right? We're going to secure them from trauma. We're going to lock them down, and that's actually not good, <laughs> right? It, it, it's it's the ways that you can secure something by making it safe by putting it in a lockbox or putting it in a prison. It's it's not it's not safety, I suppose. It's not a relational, ongoing thing. It's instead a type of it's a type of putting to death, I suppose, in some ways, or a type of locking down in that other sense. I mean, this fantasy that we can protect children, right, is, is a fantasy of a world of, of where, in which no one has ever experienced his injury. No one ever makes a mistake either, something that they might come to regret. So there's that. But then, you know, we can think there's a long history in this country, and not only here, but I'll focus on the U.S., of, the, of claims to protect children being used to justify the harm to some other children. We know that, you know, some children are, in fact, have policies crafted to protect them. Right. And many, and, and which does harm to other kinds of children, whether children of color, poor children, trans and queer children, right? That, um, these child first policies, um, have, you know, have, are not about children or right. all children, mm-hmm. right? So there's that other problem too of the, the concrete politics, um, of, of how this, you know, protecting children from harm get put to work. And how much this idea of protection is allied with reproducing a world that is heterosexual, cis, normative in a variety of different ways, like class, uh, ability, and whiteness, no matter what the kind of like the, the, the racial classification of anyone tells about whitening out experience. Um, so this is not about protecting. This is about protecting a certain figure of the child that is compatible with neoliberal logics and logics of governmentality that go far beyond the individual child that's in one's office. It seems to, to also bear on protecting certain fantasies of what the, the clinical professional can do, right? right? And, and it's, it's, 
there's a vicious circularity to it, right? Insofar as if this neoliberal edifice and these structures of of of, of norming produce all this human wreckage, it, it, you it, there's a certain logic to the fact that a clinician would cling to the idea. Well, there's at least some subset of people who I'm going to be able to protect, right? Or there's at least some subset of people who are permanently damaged and who I can't protect, but at least I can name them as permanently damaged. And it's the brutal irony of the fact that this is emanating from within psychoanalysis, uh, which, you know, of course, has this, this lengthy history of the idea of simply acknowledging the existence of children's interest in sexual matters is, quote-unquote, the same as, you know, sexualizing them or abusing them, right? All these other calumnies, like actual calumnies in, in the sort of the ethical, not the legal sense that have been le- levied against psychoanalysis is, I, I suppose, makes the dual point that psychoanalysis is not outside of the cultural norm, but also I think is it makes the puts a certain onus on psychoanalysts to be all the more aware of that. Yeah. yeah. You're describing is also the ways in which psychoanalysis is always already political, yes. mm-hmm. especially when it understands itself as being neutral or objective. Uh, and it is what makes the kinds of responses that we got from the IJP and kind of like what's happening right now, kind of like what makes it possible to name them, not just as attempts to protect, but as anti-trans clinical activism. It is activism, even as it understands itself as just protecting children and not activism in a good sense of the word. And, and here we can, you know, go to my, my other boyfriend, mm-hmm. Foucault, and think of psychoanalysis <laughs> and, you know, these struggles within psychoanalysis, which are never only about psychoanalysis, they're part of a larger cultural conversation, are local sites of struggle, right? Right, which, which have real-world political consequences in these local sites, in this sense, psychoanalysts can be specific intellectuals in the ways in which Foucault talks about that, that there are tools we have at our disposal, the kinds of theoretical work we've done or could be doing, the kinds of practices we engage in that can speak back to, can actually do something to make, you know, sort of a, a different kind of world possible, can crack things open a bit. And especially, you know, when we see that there are people lending their names and reputations to serve transphobic policy goals, you know, I think one of the things we're trying to do in this book and in whatever small way we can is to say, look, here are here's another intervention. Here are other things we can do with psychoanalysis that are urgently necessary that we do. I mean, we have there's a, you know, we have a strong ethics in this book. We have a politics of what we're trying to do. And we know that this is also messy because this is also the limits of omnipotent thinking. What we hope to do with this book, how we hope our arguments will be taken up, we can't guarantee. Right. We and we worry. This is something we really talked about a lot. We spoke to some treasured and trusted colleagues, you know, asking them to read earlier versions of the book. Like, can we say this? Can we right. pressure core gender identity? Can we say that trauma and gender are always, as Avi said earlier, syndicating? Can we say that without it's being turned against queer and trans people? That oh, yes, they are warped. Right. And can we risk it? And our our friends, and this is why they're, they're you know, we we trusted them. They said, look. You can't guarantee how your words will be taken up, but you have to say it. And, and um, you know, that, and you can only be so careful. Like, there's there's no guarantee. Yeah. Like, you have to give up control and the fantasy of it. You're giving me a very beautiful segue to ask um, what I think is probably going to be our, our, our last set of questions because they're because they're enormous and, and impossible we've we, we talk a lot about the impossible profession on this uh, 
on this podcast, but so impossible questions are a sort of necessary corollary. But I wonder if I can ask you both, um, you know, just kind of thinking about what you've just been talking about and about your broader hopes and fears or anxieties for the future of psychoanalysis. Um, I, I know there's there's language at the beginning of the book where you talk about just how difficult it is to get uh, analysis to to metabolize new ideas. And then, you know, as you, as you said it before, there is this sort of idea psychoanalysis needs to get screwed, right? And like, what does that mean? So I want to ask you about those hopes and those fears. And I also, returning to a term that came up a lot at the beginning, which is ambivalence, I want to ask you what is perhaps a more personal question about what it is like for each of you to to work and to write within this tradition um, to which, you know, I, I, I do see you both as, as exhibiting a profound ambivalence, um, you know, so conscious of, of the harms that, that it has done and that it continues to enact. And yet, you know, I also see you as, as both just so deeply committed to its possibilities. I'll start with saying we actually don't want psychoanalysis to metabolize new ideas. We don't want psychoanalysis to be ingesting new ideas and digesting them and then um, expulsing, expelling them mm. <laughs> to use like a very particular kind of metaphor, <laughs> which, which means that it takes everything that is alien and foreign to it and everything that has a chance to actually reorder it. And what it does is it packages it away and throws it away while it also maintains the patina of interdisciplinary engagement. I think that's one of the biggest problems in psychoanalysis today. Like all of this excitement about disciplinary engagement, which psychoanalysis then uses to actually just reaffirm what it already thinks it knows about race, about gender, and so on and so forth. So uh, we are hoping, I'll speak for myself, I'm hoping for a psychoanalysis that can tolerate being screwed, and I'll say why I use this word, so that it can be screwed together differently and be re-screwed. And I, I use the word screwed because with its intentional um, kind of like sexual uh, implications and the violence, because there is a certain violence that we have to dare due to psychoanalysis, no power structure, and psychoanalysis is a power structure, relinquishes its power willingly. It has to be pushed. It has to be challenged. And we have to push it and screw it and challenge it because we love it. And that's, in my mind, what an ethical approach to care is like to put a lot of pressure on what does not work rather than trying to preserve it just for the sake of staying alive. Like we have to risk the psychoanalysis dying and let whatever needs to die, die and trust that we will create the theories that we need to do the work that we need to do and that there are going to be new theories and they will have some connection with what we understand to be at the core of psychoanalysis but it's not going to be recognizable when we're done with it. And we should we should ex expect and demand and hope for nothing less than that. As psychoanalysis does its, you know, if it's, it, it just, it's interdisciplinary reach out, right? It's like, oh, how are these, as we're reading feminist theory and queer theory, like how is this congruent with psychoanalysis? And right. so again, it, it takes it in, but it doesn't, 
let self really be radically transformed, right? It, it leaves its metapsychologies intact. Mm. Like psychoanalysis, its foundations have to shake, right? And, you know, so, you know, our book, which is heavily indebted to the work of Jean Laflanche, speaking of new foundations, right, for psychoanalysis, you know, rests as much on queer and trans theories, especially queer and trans of color critique. Yes. Right. This is not so that psychoanalysis can just like, oh, how does this fit? It's like to undo what psychoanalysis understands about itself, the categories it thinks in. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, to again, to this is a mutation whose futures we cannot know. Not unlike, I suppose, the ways in which we think gender is an ongoing mutation whose futures we can certainly not safely predict as a clinician, nor can we actually, as the individual undergoing those mutations, predict our own futures. And we, we hope, you know, which I also want to say in this, you know, and I know Avi would agree with this, even as we're putting pressure on core gender identity and born this way frames throughout our book, in no way are we seeking to legislate how any subject tells the story of their gender or their sexuality. And this, this is especially so for queer and trans subjects who are constantly made to produce stories of ourselves because our lives depend on it, right? So we want to grant to people their self-accounts but we also want to create space for the more complex ways people are already telling the stories of themselves. Like they don't fit into our available political discourse. They might not even fit clinical theories, right? So, and I think that's important to say. But, you know, the ambivalence, I suppose, I myself had with regard to psychoanalysis is, the, again, the awareness of its the historical harms, its ongoing harms. And, and this question of, or maybe this realization that perhaps this might be my Foucault hat, like, even as we're pushing it and even as it changes, and I think these things are possible, it's very hard for those changes not to actually get collapsed back into or pulled back into more conservative positions. Yeah. Right. This is the, you know, the ways in which, you know, resistance that's successful then can get reconsolidated to go to Laplanche, the ways in which there's a recentering of the radical shake because it's hard to live within the radical shake. It just, it's so easy and to go back to what you what we felt more familiar. And so I have that worry, like how even as we're pushing, how might we ourselves get pulled back into the familiar? I mean, it's inevitable. And and I would add something about the ambivalence. Like I'm not just ambivalent, I'm also very angry with psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. I'm very angry with the damage that psychoanalysis is doing in the name of protectionism. Um, and it's part of what energizes me to do the work that we're doing and to push back. And I want to say to people who are listening, who are perhaps analysts or candidates in training, there's nothing wrong with being angry with this field. And to still love it, there's nothing wrong. There's a lot of things that psychoanalysis is doing wrong. Um, and anger, you know, I'm thinking of you know, Audre Lorde's famous you know, essay and the uses of anger. Like anger here is a form of relation. Mm-hmm. Anger need not be seen as, you know, like, okay, we're forever divided. Anger is a way of, of making new relations or transforming the relations that exist. It's not a betrayal. In fact, in some sense, it's a betrayal to deny one's anger, to swallow it because of the comfort of the other person, you know, you're speaking to. Like, I can't say that I'm angry. I can't speak my anger. Thank you both so much for for being with us today. 
Um, there's so much for our listeners to, to sit with and, and think about where else can they read you or hear you speak in, in the coming, coming months? Um, we are giving several talks um, in relation to the book. In January, on the 13th of January, we're going to be in Brighton in an event sponsored by the Red Clinic. And um, there's an event with Kaji, I mean, that Anne and I are doing as part of Division 39. Uh, but um, there's information on my website for whoever is interested uh, for future talks. They can um, list everything that we're doing so people can check it out there. My uh, we really did. We really admired the book an, an enormous really amount. An this yeah. was really Your podcast del- is such a delight. So it's nice to have it in the world. That, that, oh, so much that means a lot coming both. from you. Yeah. Thank you. And truly, anytime you want to come back, Laplanche, teaching, all, all right, all of these well, things. I, I think we're both reliable to come back. So. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so Wonderful. much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield, Avi Sakatopoulou, and Ann Pellegrini. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken. <laughs>